Two things before we get in. First, uh, a word of welcome and thanks, Eleanor. We are so delighted that you are here and working with the kids and helping to lead worship this summer. Uh, secondly, I see Heidi had adjusted the uh, pulpit downward, so with my uh, eyesight, it'll be a major miracle if I can read any of this. I have had a really bad cold all week. And if I end up in a coughing fit in the middle of the service, please give me a little grace in the midst of that. Um, you can hear in my voice that I sound even lower than I usually do. I'm moving down into Johnny Cash territory. I'm not quite there. Well, at this point in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is about to begin a new phase of ministry, sending out his disciples to share in his mission. Earlier in the Gospel, we had the Sermon on the Mount. Now we have what scholars call the Sermon on Mission, which comprises the second of five major teaching blocks in Matthew's Gospel. The Sermon on Mission starts at 9.35 and runs to 11.1. Matthew marks the development by repeating nearly word for word the same statement he used several times chapters earlier at the outset of Jesus' ministry. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and sickness. This not only serves as a, a directional signal alerting the reader to turn in the narrative road, a new stage in the story of Jesus, but it also makes an early connection between the ministry of the disciples and subsequently the church and that of Jesus. Despite controversy and conflict, Jesus is steady on his path, still teaching, preaching, and healing, and that will be both the lot and the work of the disciples too. They too, he says, will be embroiled in controversy But they are not to be deterred from the service of the kingdom, preaching and teaching and healing, as they work toward the harvest that Jesus has assured them is indeed plentiful. This passage that we're ready to read is a number of texts that Matthew has stitched together uh, about what it means to be out in mission. So beginning at 1024, hear the word of God. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above the master. It is enough for the disciple to be like the teacher and the slave like the master. If they have called the master of the house Belzebul, how much more will they malign those in the household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered up that will not be uncovered, and nothing secret that will not become known. What I've said to you in the dark, tell in the light. And what you heard whispered, proclaim from the housetops. Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet one of them, not one of them, will fall to the ground apart from your father. And even the hairs of your head are all counted. So do not be afraid. 
you are of more value than many sparrows. Everyone therefore acknowledges me before others. I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I will deny before my Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but the sword. For I have come to set man against his father and daughter against her mother and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and one's foes will be members of one's own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those who find their life will lose it and those who lose their life for my sake We'll find it. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The more we read the Bible, the more we see things we wish Jesus had never said. This passage is one of them. Disciples should be like their teachers. So far, so good. Don't be afraid. Sound biblical advice, even if it's hard to follow. Disciples are more valuable than sparrows. Every hair on your head is counted. Now we're talking. I like to remind you of that one. Don't think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword. Now wait a minute. What? Maybe I misread. Let me keep going on. I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother. Thankfully, we didn't have this text last week on Father's Day. It's not something you're ever going to find in Hallmark. And it doesn't get better. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever doesn't take up the cross and follow is not worthy of me, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. That doesn't sound like the word of the Lord, does it? But it is. Now I know why Donovan went on sabbatical and Heidi's on vacation. They looked, at the, they looked at the lectionary before I did. One commentator suggests jumping in with both feet and saying, God demands my soul, my life, my all. We're called to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbors like ourselves. What does the Lord require of us to do justice? Love mercy and walk humbly with our God all the way to the cross. The only way to rise with Christ is first to die with him. We may well know these things. So the question becomes, do we do these things? Or phrases like take up the cross and follow and dying and rising with Christ become empty Christian platitudes. Keep in mind this text from Matthew is a communication of Jesus' marching order to the first 12 missionaries. The 12 disciples are, are being sent out into the world that will be none too welcoming of them. Jesus isn't sugarcoating or soft-selling the nature of the task ahead. They'll face what he has already had to face because of that they are afraid. They'll be persecuted. Their physical lives will be in danger. Sharing in his ministry, they also share in his suffering. 
If they have slandered Jesus, the master in the house, with charges of demon possession, then they, the, the people in confrontation, will say even worse thing about those of the household. Turning back, getting off the path, will be a constant option again and again and again. Is it possible that we find this reading from Matthew so hard to hear because we have taken our discipleship too lightly and our context hasn't forced us to confront our comfortable Christianity? Perhaps, we say, this test resonated more with the German Christians in the 1930s or 40s who struggled to remain faithful and wrote the Barman Declaration, or those congregations here in the South in the 1950s and 60s who fought segregation and stood up for civil rights. I wonder how this text sounds right now today in the ears of the Iranian Christians I was with in Turkey in March, who are refugees and suffer persecution in their homeland. Or the Egyptian and Chinese Christians I knew at seminary who endured violence at the hands of the government or their neighbors. There are times and places where Jesus' words of persecution for his namesake are far from hypothetical. I, I see Tom here and visiting with our friends in Syria in the midst of that war. In those times and to those people, hearing Jesus' words, those who find their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it, might be comforting, not challenging. But what about us in our own time and place? This week, we've had another wonderful round of conversations with small groups in the visioning process. These were targeted for young adults and young families and parents or teens, and they they gathered here at church and in homes of those who are on the visioning committee. And, And one of the things that I heard bubble up was a desire to see Westminster be more involved in the community in ministries of compassion and justice. A whole host of them. And I like that. Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. I confess that I've spent most of this week trying to find a way to swallow these words, but it's virtually impossible without causing indigestion. The English scholar N.T. Wright suggests the absolute demands of Jesus bring us back to where we were in the Sermon on the Mount. It isn't the case that there are some fine ideals in the mind of God and that Jesus just happened to teach them a bit better than other people. Nor is it the case that Jesus came to show us the way through the present world to a quite different one where we'll go after death. No, Jesus came to begin and establish the new way of being God's people. And not surprisingly, those who were quite happy with the old one, thank you very much, didn't want to be disturbed. He didn't want to bring division within households for the sake of it, but he knew that if people followed his way, division was bound to follow. Actually, this passage about sons and fathers, daughters and mothers, and so on, 
is a quotation out of the Old Testament prophet Micah. In, in the passage that Jesus quotes the, from Micah, he predicts the division that would always occur when God was doing a new thing. When God acts to rescue God's people, there are always some who declare that they don't need rescuing. They're comfortable just where they are. Part of the reason for quoting Micah here is to say to the disciples, don't be surprised if this happens now, if it happens in your own life. This too is part of your tradition. Your own scriptures contain warnings about the great disruptions that will happen when God finally acts to save you on the cross. That's why Jesus' challenge to the disciples themselves and through them to Israel of his day had to be so sharp and often has to be just as sharp today when people still naturally prefer comfort over challenge. The radical good news of the gospel confronts any and all who would seek to limit it. Recently, a friend sent a piece that illustrates this expansive revelation of God's radical welcome that we see in Scripture. It says, The Bible is clear. Moabites are bad. They were not to be allowed to dwell among God's people. Deuteronomy 23. But then comes the story of Ruth the Moabite, which challenges the prejudice against the Moabites. The Bible is clear. People from Uz are evil. Jeremiah 25. But then comes the story of the man called Job, who was from Uz, who was the most blameless man on earth. The Bible is clear. No foreigners or eunuchs allowed from Deuteronomy 23. But then comes the story of the African eunuch welcomed into the church in Acts 8. The Bible is clear. God's people hated Samaritans. But then Jesus tells a story that not all Samaritans were bad. The story may begin with prejudice, discrimination, and animosity, but the the Spirit moves God's people forwards toward openness, welcome, inclusion, acceptance, and affirmation. One of the things that I think is most exciting to study in, in the Old Testament are these intertestamental dialogues going on. It said one's out, but later says in. The story of Jonah, that beautiful prophetic story, is all about the wideness of God's mercy. But not everyone wants God's mercy to be wide. Jonah didn't. Eugene Peterson, in his contemporary English paraphrase of the Bible, the message, renders verse 34 this way. Don't think I've come to make life cozy. On the one hand, I like that. I like it a lot. Being a follower of Jesus makes life in one way less comfortable because we're disquieted as we feel the pain of the world that that makes God's heart break. How How can we be at ease when we see the brokenness of the world? And sense God's tears. So maybe we can begin to understand why Jesus had to say, do not think that I have 
come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. He, he knew the best way to create dissension, difficulty, and strife was to start loving everybody. Yet he kept loving. He, he understood that the quickest way to disturb a, a close group of friends was to invite an outsider to join them for supper. Yet he kept inviting he realized that the fastest way to divide a house was to, to treat everybody fairly, to consider everyone equally, to forgive everybody without any desire to get even or to keep score. Yet that was the cross he chose to carry. And that's the cross he hands over to us. Don't think I've come to make life cozy. He taught them, saying, love your neighbor, do not judge, go the extra mile, make peace with your accuser. In response, a, a large crowd of thugs came out against him with clubs and swords. One of his own disciples pulled out a sword and came out swinging. Jesus said, put your sword back, for all who take the sword perish by the sword. Somebody said, but, but Jesus, you said yourself, you come to bring a sword. Well, it's a different kind of sword than we might think. We do well to regard a picture from the early church, a, a portrait of Jesus from the book of Revelation. His hair is pure white as a sign of holiness. His eyes are like fire, a symbol of love. In his hands, he holds the seven stars as a sign of authority. But from his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. It's dramatic of the portrayal of truth that the sword Jesus brought is his word that Jesus spoke. When he spoke, he made the difference. When Christ still speaks, his words cut through. Now, I can't speak for you, but I'm not sure I always want to hear him speak. I might have to change who I am. I, I would have to confront my own unfinished business. I know all too well the unredeemed corners of my life. Truth be told, I resist God's insistent intrusion, even though the one thing I want more than anything else is for God to get that close. I've come to bring a sword, he said. Try as I might, I cannot defend myself against those words. I can only respond to them. And it's clear what that would mean with a word of truth. The Lord cuts away all in our lives that is false. With a, a word of health, the Savior separates us from all in our lives that is diseased. With a word that demands a life-death commitment, Christ trims away every lazy alliance, every partial affirmation, every half-hearted hope. The author of the book of Hebrews puts it, indeed the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and before God no creature is hidden, but all are naked and laid bare to the eyes of the one whom he must render an account. 
do we really want to be exposed like that? Can we let the Lord cut that close? Are we willing to love Jesus more than anything or anybody? Am I willing to trust him enough that I would lose my life for his sake? If our faith is real and alive, if we desire to be called the disciple, these are the questions that never go away. They never go away. Even if we believe we've answered the question before, they never go away because they bring us into the presence of a God who accepts us as we are, yet who loves us enough to change us into a totally complete new creation. All that takes is a simple yes and a laying down of arms. Then the transformation can begin. I cannot predict how it will go. Nobody can expect the transformation to be easy. But there is one thing that I know for certain. When the Lord begins to work in our lives, the place where he always begins is the place closest to home. Thanks be to God for such a gift. Amen.